Hello and welcome to the IFSEC Global Security in Focus podcast, where we bring you exclusive interviews with leading figures in the physical security industry to get to the heart of the profession. Hello and thank you for joining us for a special episode of the Security in Focus podcast with me, James Moore, editor of IFSEC Global. We've got an absolute treat for you today with not one, not two, but three contributors on the show. They're all linked by the fact that they'll be speaking or on hand to talk to at IFSEC 2023. As a reminder, the UK's biggest and best security exhibition takes place at London's XL between the 16th to the 18th of May. While our quickfire interview with Jerry Dunphy, event director of IFSEC, is all about what's going on at the show this year, the conversations on today's podcast have much wider relevance outside of the event. So don't worry if you listen to this after the show either. Our first guest is Fegan Murray, now not just a very well-known figure in the UK security sector, but as you'll hear shortly, also outside of the UK. I'll let Fegan tell her own story, but as a brief introduction for those who might not be aware, Fegan Murray has been the driving force behind Martin's Law, also known as the Protect Duty over the last few years here in the UK. The legislation, which we've mentioned on several previous episodes of the podcast, is set to be introduced this year, hopefully in spring, and is designed to ensure the public is better protected from a multifaceted, diverse, and continually evolving terror threat. Vegan's son, Martin Hett, sadly died in the Manchester Arena bombing in May 2017, alongside 21 others. Today, you'll find out more about Martin, as well as Vegan's own experiences of working with the security sector to keep the momentum up for what many believe is an incredibly important piece of legislation. Fegan will also be speaking at IFSEC 2023 as part of the Martin's Law Conference taking place off the show floor on the Wednesday. Following Fegan's interview, we've got a quick fire round of questioning to the person responsible for putting IFSEC together, Jerry Dunphy, as we hear all about the new additions to the show this year and the popular features that are returning. We then finish off with a fascinating interview between Rihanna Sexton, IFSEC Global's assistant editor, and Sarah Meat, managing director of mental health charity Mates in Mind. Mental health is, of course, a crucial topic for everyone in the security sector, where many professionals suffer from mental health illnesses. Sarah explains how Mates in Mind can help and how managers and colleagues can spot the signs to support conversations with employees or friends and open up that discussion. But let's not keep you any longer. I'll be back a few times throughout to introduce each segment, but for now, let's hear from Fegan Murray and her journey towards getting Martin's Law off the ground. Fegan, if we just start off, for those who might not know, although I'm sure many do now in the industry, do you want to just introduce yourself and the background to Martin's Law or the protect duty as other people might know it? So my name is Fegan Murray and uh, I started this journey with Martin's Law after Martin, my son, died at the Manchester Arena attack and uh, 18 months after the attack, uh, I went to a public venue, a theatre for the first time after the event and was horrified to see that there were no bug checks. In fact, nobody even checked our tickets for the concert and it it completely shocked me. So I started the campaign for Martin's Law. Was it that moment where you, you know, where you sort of standing in the in the queue and realised that you hadn't been checked? What what was that moment like for you, I suppose? What, you you know, with the realisation that that played played a part in what happened to to Martin all those months ago? There was no queue. There were staff uh, stood around doing chatting to each other, really. They looked at us and then turned away and carried on talking. And uh, it, it just completely shocked me that after 22 people 
died in that city that I would go to a public venue, you know, where there were probably about 3,000 people in the audience. I could just walk in and nobody even checked our tickets or bags or pockets or anything. It, it just completely, yeah, I was floored. I was completely floored. Yeah, it must make you think. And for, for those who, you know, might not be aware or might not be based in the UK, can you give a little, just a brief explanation of what exactly Martin's Law is going to set out to do and what it's looking to do for the security sector and, and, and the wider idea of public safety for in the UK? So basically what Martin's Law is asking is that the staff at venues, uh, as a very minimum, have the 45-minute free ACT e-learning training. It's, it's just a short programme for less than an hour to give uh, staff a basic understanding of, of the dangers um, we're also asking venues to do a risk at- assessment, both inside and outside. Just go around the venue, think like a bad person and think, where are your vulnerabilities if somebody wants to get into your building and, and cause harm? And then we're asking in number three, point number three is that people mitigate the anything identified in the risk assessment number two. And then number four would be that uh, people have a counterterrorism action plan and actually inform staff. So if, for instance, there was an attack to happen, if somebody came to your building with a knife or a machete or whatever, that people know what to do, but, you know, how to behave, where to evacuate or evacuate themselves, their customers, their staff, their colleagues. And number four would be for bigger venues that local authorities are prepared and work with the venue. And that's basically, in a nutshell, what we are asking for. Yeah, it's about that preparation, just mm-hmm. thinking it through a little bit more, having those processes in place, I suppose, and then that's right. thinking about the mitigation measures that if, if an event was to happen, what you know, how do you respond? And and thinking, I guess, it's a crisis management, uh, risk management perspective. The new legislation, obviously, which which is going through the parliamentary process at the moment, I believe, and and the government says. It is designed to make public spaces safer. And it's obviously going to be, be named after Martin, as, as we discussed with Martin's Law. Mm-hmm. Can you just tell us a little bit more about Martin as a person, uh, you know, who he was and, and how you think he might feel knowing the work his, his mother has, has put into building something positive out of such a terrible event, I suppose? I hope he would think that he didn't die for nothing and, and that his name means something now. But um, really, I hope he would be pleased with what they're doing. How can I describe Martin? He was, uh, you know, I'm not just saying that because I'm his mum and I'm biased, but he genuinely was a really kind person. He had a big, big heart and he always looked after the underdog, you know, any people around him who were less privileged to him. He'd he'd be really kind to them. And um, he had an infectious laugh and he had an incredible sense of humour as well. And and the rest of, of your family, are they, how supportive have they been throughout this whole process? My husband is an absolute champion because um, I did say to him right at the beginning when the event at this theatre happened there, where there was no security, when I started researching security and found there was no legislation for it, I said to him, I need to do this, but I need to do this as a mum, I can't do this as a parent, I, I need to do this by myself. He understood that and, you know, he is incredibly supportive. He puts up with me travelling constantly all over the UK and these days even abroad. Um, I'm about to go to Iceland next month. You know, he came with me to Istanbul. I was in, in America 
on my own once and he put up with me being constantly absent and cooking his own tea and and you know it's it's like um he he never says anything he never complains bless him and the rest of my family i would like to think they are happy with what i'm doing because they've got children i've got grandkids you know they're hopefully appreciating i do it to keep my grandkids safe in the future as well yeah of course absolutely and you, you mentioned that you, you've, you're obviously traveling a lot and, and actually outside of the UK as well. You know, this this legislation is is specific to the UK, I believe. But what's what's the reaction been like outside of the UK? Has the incident made other countries aware and has the campaign, the Martin's Law campaign, sort of worked yeah. with that as well? Yeah, uh, as the campaign is obviously quite known in the UK now, uh, other countries, um, you know, I go and talk at international expos and, and conferences a lot. So people from other countries contact me then. I mean, I'm doing next week, I'm doing a, a live presentation to Canada, for instance. I've done several to America and, and one to Australia. So I do stuff online as well, live. Today I did one for the Baltic uh, countries uh, for an apprenticeship scheme. So I do my presentations internationally, anyway, online. But I think what's happened is, as people hear about it, they realise that in their own countries they haven't got security that would keep people safe and therefore they they are asking me to go and speak at their venues now at, at you know abroad and during my conversation with Rishi Sunak in December I did say to him on the telephone that actually you know this is gaining international interest and the UK can really shine with this internationally globally yeah, I think it is something where, you know, because of the process and, and the work that you've put in and people who have worked alongside you as well, and people like Nick Aldworth, you know, have put into this, it is a, probably more advanced than maybe some elsewhere. Was it quite a shock to you that there wasn't this legislation or a particular specific regulations perhaps in place for particularly larger venues, publicly accessible venues? Yeah, totally. Um, I, I was quite flabbergasted, really, when I realised because, you know, th there are rules on how hot food has to be in canteens. There are rules on how many toilets there have to be. There are rules not to sell food past the sell-by date. Yet there is no rule on security. Uh, I, I just can't believe that, especially with the, count with the terrorism landscape having changed so much since 2014. Um, I would have thought that the legislation is kept up to date and, and that the government, not just our government, all governments really, are actually tightening security everywhere, but they haven't. And I'm surprised that as a layperson, I had to initiate that. It's, it's quite surprising. And, and actually what was telling, it was really interesting, because when you go to big venues and you see people in high-vis jackets as a layperson, one makes the assumption that they are security and they know what they're doing. And, and how wrong was I, you know, when I realised that that actually... They may just be stewards with hardly any or no training. But n not only that, when I did my campaign, the last six months, the government campaigns, then they automatically stop. And I had to do a lot of prompting on social media and begging and pleading with people to sign my campaign. And yet halfway through my campaign, two other ones emerged and overtook me by the hundreds of thousands. You could literally see the counter turning. And, and within two, three weeks, they, they just completely superseded everything. And uh, one of them was bring back the Jeremy Kyle show. And the other one was bring back plastic straws for McDonald's because the public had a real problem sucking up milkshake without 
a plastic straw. So nobody has the brains to actually just lift the lid and drink it. You know, <laughs> um, I mean, whilst that sounds ridiculous and funny in places, it actually isn't because what it made me when I stood back and looked at that in amazement, I thought, well, actually, it makes sense to me because the general public, just like I was before Martin died, has no sense of security. It is not on the peop- on the public's radar. Do you know what? In if if I'm honest, it never was on my radar. Yeah, it's um, and it and being honest, from you know, I came into the industry in, in 2019 and and hadn't thought about security in the way that you know I, I do maybe a little bit more now. I'm, I'm you know, I'm mm-hmm. not a security professional, but talking about it and writing about it, and particularly looking at everything that's that's happened with this campaign. It, it often, I guess, gets uh, mixed up with with convenience, doesn't it? I think um, people don't want to have barriers in place to get into venues, etc. So the venue goes, well, what what might be more important at that point in time? We don't want to lose customers because of this. But I think maybe this is putting it back into perspective. And and do you think this is showing how important to venues and venue operators how important security is? Because when it goes wrong, yes, you know, look at what can happen. Is that probably, you know, one of the key messages you'd like to get across? Yes. And I mean, people shouldn't have to die when they go and enjoy themselves. You know, they should be able to come home safely again. And I think, you know, when when you part with your hard-earned cash, the least you can expect is that the venue keeps you safe. And, you know, I was criticised at the beginning about money and I was was told you're going to make people bankrupt and you're going to take spontaneity out of... uh, people's lives and uh, you're going to just cause fear and and, uh, and anxiety in people. And all of that is absolute non- nonsense, really, because when you look at it and unpick it, actually people have the right to be kept safe. And if they know they're kept safe, they can enjoy the venue and the event much more freely. And again, that money can be actually creatively recuperated through just adding maybe 50 pence to the ticket price. Yeah, and, and would you maybe think about it being transparent from a venue operator and saying that this this price is increased by this amount because yeah. we want to put this additional safeguarding yeah. in? I suppose. Um, were you quite surprised by that reaction when people were sort of pushing back a little bit? Not surprised, but it did make me think because I, you know, I always try and work with feedback and and critical comments. Uh, I always try and put myself in the other person's shoes and think, why are they making that comment? So, so I can understand it. But, you know, I had somebody on Twitter say to me, well, maybe people, the general public, don't want to pay the extra 50 pence uh, on the ticket price. And I said, well, just don't tell the public, because when you buy a an entrance ticket to watch, I don't know, Take That or Share or Harry Styles, uh, when you buy the ticket, you don't get an itemized breakdown, how much the artists get, how much is for cleaning, how much is spent for electricity. What's the problem? Just don't tell the public, but make sure you ring fence that 50 pence purely as a, a security expenditure. Put it in your annual report as a, a security expenditure. I always give the example of, you know, when I get the criticism about money of the Manchester Arena, if they they have a capacity of, I think, 21,000 people, if they run three concerts a week at half capacity, 10,000 people only, and everybody paid 50 pence over a 50-week period, that would generate £750,000. Now, that would pay for security equipment, training, 
you know, it would pay for all sorts. So, and, and that would be an annual figure, you know, and the equipment often you only have to buy once. And the other thing I would say is there's better and better technology coming out. We now have, uh, I've been yesterday to a, an event in Manchester and at a big venue and they had mass screening technology. And I know a few venues in Manchester have that technology in place now. And people don't even know they're going through security, which is incredible. Technology is always advancing, so um, it can't be an argument. <laughs> it, it, no, I agree. It really is. And, and the, the security sector particular I've, I've seen is, is very innovative with the technology it's, it's, it's bringing out all the time, whether it's you know more advanced video algorithms in video surveillance and CCTV, whether it's frictionless access control that is still you know really secure, but but provides convenience for the user as well. Uh, you know, you just got to cater that, I guess, for for the for the venue that that you're you're operating. Um, and you know, there's mass communication, critical risk platforms all over the place now. So it, it is something that advances. And as you say, putting that ring fencing that budget for security allows the security professionals to do what they want to do, which is to protect and secure and mitigate risk. And on that note, I mean, how, how have you found working with the security industry over the past few years? Absolutely incredible. My goodness, I've made so many new friends. And, and I feel, I put it a comment on LinkedIn recently that I feel not only has the security sector come on board with it, mainly on the whole, the security sector has embraced Martin's Law. And I feel they've put that coat around me, they wrapped themselves around me and, and that's giving me the confidence to continue the work I do because so many people are behind this and, and uh, have a whole army behind me, which feels great, you know, so we will succeed together. From the responses I've seen and, and, you know, when you've spoken at events and whether it be awards or whatever it might be, you can see the, the passion that the security sector has all the time. And particularly when something something like this, which is so important to them, it's their domain and, and they want to be able to be the best that they can be at protecting assets and protecting people, I think. And that will be helped if, if there is budget in place. If it, as, as you say, if there's a ring fence budget in place, that, that can only help things. Just moving on slightly to uh, the Manchester Arena inquiry. I know it's, um, I think, I believe it's finished now, or it certainly isn't at closing stages. I think like, three three reports have been published. I think the first one in particular was was related to the private security sector and, and some of the missed opportunities there. You know, when you first read that, were you surprised? What was your reaction, I guess, to to that? Well, I was sat in, in at the inquiry most days, and and obviously listened to the evidence of all the people, and and my reaction has never been one of anger. And oh gosh, can you believe it? It has always been, goodness, so many mistakes have been made, and those people giving evidence, all the different security people, and. Um, whoever gave evidence, I, I kept thinking, goodness, they, they know they've made mistakes and those people who made mistakes have to get up every morning and face themselves in the mirror and for the rest of their lives, that can't be easy. I just feel compassion for those people, if I'm honest. I have never been angry or anything because it doesn't bring Martin back or anybody else. Um, I've always been a person who looks forward and doesn't have too many regrets and stuff. And I just feel everybody who goes into the security industry, the sector, all the police and fire service sector and, and 
everybody goes into those jobs, definitely not because of the sociable hours, but because of a genuine desire to help people. But they're human beings. Mistakes are going to be made. I don't intend to sound flippant. Of course, Martin died and I'm really upset that, that I have no longer got him in my life. But I know nobody made mistakes on purpose. Absolutely. And is that how you feel as well? Because I, I know the, the, the third volume looked at you know the radicalisation of the bomber and, and preventability attack. There is a sense from some, I believe, that, that there's a missed opportunity for the wider public to and particularly the families of, of the victims to, to better understand what happened because I know there's some key findings that have been held back because of security purposes I believe from the government is that something you do you think there's a missed opportunity there or are you... um right the way I feel about it is I absolutely have faith in in Sir John Saunders the chair, chairman of the inquiry I fully trust him and if he says he can't reveal certain things because of national security, then I, I trust in that. And, you know, he represents us families and, and therefore what he says is good enough for me. And again, I have been, uh, although I was a lay person, I'm sadly no longer a lay person. I know enough about police, counterterrorism, and in, in fact, the government, MI5 and, and the rest of the government, to know that not everything can be disclosed. I know also that although they can't say it publicly, there's a lot of work people do to stop terrorism and quite effectively in many cases. So I'm absolutely okay with it. You know, I don't need to know everything that that has been said and and spoken about in the inquiry. I'm, I'm more than happy to trust the judge fully. You mentioned that you're no longer a lay person. I know you did, a, I believe, a degree in uh, was it at the University of Central Lancashire, I believe. Yeah, or, I did a master's, right? in counter- master's in counterterrorism for two years, yeah. Was there anything that was particularly eye-opening when you were carrying out the course? Yeah, everything was eye-opening because I knew zero about terrorism. It was something that used to come on on the news with all the school shootings and, and uh, attacks abroad and attacks in London. And I kept thinking, oh, gosh, London, yeah, the capital, and oh, gosh, Berlin and Nice and Paris. And I thought, oh, look at those poor people uh, and all the school shootings, those poor people. And then I'd switch channels and watch The Chase or whatever, you know. And uh, I kept thinking, well, it's not, it's, it doesn't affect my life. I was so naive in those days. But then when Martin died, I had so many questions because I realised I know nothing about it. And I thought, what is terrorism? Who are those people? What? Why do they do what they do? What are governments doing about it? Is the UK doing anything proactive about it? And I had so many questions. The only way I could get answers is to actually educate myself. And the opportunity came and I took it. And I'm now sadly much wiser. But I'm, I'm glad I know all that I've learned. I've got all my answers and far, far more beyond. Yeah, it's, I can only imagine how much you learned in that two years. And um, to, I think I, I imagine it was all that bit more obviously very personal to you. So it put everything to, into perspective. Um, I think the one thing that you're still learning, I think it feels like everybody's still learning in this in this environment because the threat changes all the time and the challenges do so as well. Um, and therefore, the solutions that are required to mitigate those risks change. But ultimately, for, um, final question, You'll be speaking at this year's IFSEC in May to, to leading and influential professionals in security. And 
their fundamental job is, as we've discussed, to, to mitigate risk and protect people and places they're looking after. So with that in mind, what, what would be your prevailing message to security professionals going forward? Never stop and always try and be a step ahead of the game because I get the sense from my all my learning since it all happened that, that terrorists seem to always be a step or two ahead of us. So we need to catch up and therefore none of us should ever be complacent. We need to just keep coming up with new ideas and, and, and try and predict what's going to happen next and be prepared. Wow. Huge thanks to Fegan for taking some time out of her busy schedule to provide some more background into the work that's gone into the legislation over the last few years. The dedication she's put in, especially considering the circumstances, has been remarkable and it's always a pleasure to talk to Fegan. As I mentioned earlier, Fegan will be talking at this year's Martin's Law Conference at IFSEC in May, so you can hear more from her then. There's a link in the episode description to register for the conference, although spaces are limited, so do be quick. But what else is happening at IFSEC, I hear you ask? Well, wonder no longer. We'll pass you over to our five-minute segment with Jerry Dumphy, event director, to explain what this year's show is all about. Well, it's kind of three days of intensive focused discovery, discussion, collaboration, it's where the UK and international security worlds come together under one single purpose, which is all about making the world a much, much safer place. It's a destination event. It's full of energy. It's got loads of committed people, loads of enjoyment. And most importantly, this year, it's 50 years young and really looking forward to the next 50 years. Well, very exciting. And, and when and where is the show and how can people get there? The show is located in London's XL venue on the 16th to the 18th of May this year. Um, how can you get there? Well, very, very pleased to say we've got the brand new Elizabeth Line, which is now uh, running from east to west in London. So it means that the journey times and the seamless connections to XL have been vastly improved from what they were before. So you can actually get to XL, for instance, from central London in 15 minutes. You can also get to XL direct from Heathrow in 45 minutes. Um, it's not just that, though. You've obviously got the, the DLR still running. You've got access via city airport. You can also drive your car there if you'd like to because there's ample parking spaces. So, yeah, loads of connectivity at one of the biggest venues in the world and fantastically located in London, which is a favourite city for most people in the world. Plenty of ways to get there then. What's, what's new for the show this year? Yeah, we're really pleased this year. We've got the brand new distributor network, which is um, a partnership um, arrangement that we have with 11 of the UK's leading security and fire distributors. It's a realisation that we have that the distributors themselves represent a key link between the manufacturers and also the installer, integrator, end user community. So we're very pleased to be partnering with leading distributors such as uh, DVS, DTS, the CIE Group, Aprima, ADI Global, Security Dynamics, uh, Dynamics CCTV, Mass Digital and PureTech, all leading, leading distributors. They've got very, very broad and interesting national customer bases. So we're looking forward to working with them to get their customers to come to the show. But most importantly, they can meet the leading suppliers so they can ask the, the suppliers about all the technology. But, you know, use their relationship with the distributor as, as a key part of that. Um, we've also got the Tech Talks Theatre, which is bringing content back onto the show floor. Um, 
where we're looking at a huge range of things from the use of body cams, um, the future of access control. Um, we've also got a session on mental health and well-being in the security sector. And we've also got a, a specific seminar, which is all about the introduction of Martin's Law, which is coming into focus in the UK in April, hopefully this year, which will vastly change how large venues and open spaces are managed from a security perspective. From your perspective, what, what have been the most popular features of this sec that will be returning this year? Interestingly, the most popular feature that we've probably ever run is the attack testing zone, which is in partnership with the LPCB, which is basically where visitors can actually witness LPS 1175 level 3 products effectively tested to the absolute limit by the technicians from LPCB. It's a brilliantly dynamic and engaged um, set of demonstrations whereby people can watch doors, shutters, enclosures, all sorts of things basically taken to task by by the technicians and just proving why these highly engineered solutions are as effective as they are and why perhaps the customer should consider specifying them in their projects. We've also got the Converge Security Centre returning in partnerships with um, our friends at Advances, which is always a really compelling uh, example of where technology, both hardware and software, can actually come together to tell a story around a certain security incident. So it's where we're looking at simulated scenarios, you know, left luggage, um, insider threat and stuff like that. But it also shows that the visitors what can be done, what can be achieved with the proper uh, converged security uh, solution. So it's very, very uh, effective if you're running one of the one of the SOCs, whether you're running a, a, a security operations center or even a GSOC. Um, that sort of technology will really help you actually realize your ambitions. So we recommend people come and have a look at that. We've also got uh, the engineers the tomorrow feature, which is a brilliant example of where we work with partners to actually celebrate the skills and abilities of the up-and-coming engineers of tomorrow and apprentices. So we're very, very pleased to be holding the, the semi-final heats um, of that particular competition at If Second Firex this year. Fantastic. And I know sustainability is, is on the agenda for everyone. How important is sustainability to IFSEC and, and its other co-located events? Sustainability is a global question. is probably the most important challenge and the most important thing that we're all facing at the moment. And in the exhibition industry as a whole, um, we have to say that it's an extremely, has been an extremely wasteful um, industry in the past, but we are rapidly and uh, drastically addressing that um, at Informa. Um, we have a number of plans in place, not least our faster forward strategy, um, where we actually hope to be net zero by 2025. Um, we've got in place at the moment a programme called Better Stands, which is where we're working with contractors and exhibitors to ensure that the stand materials, the stand build, the contractors are all working towards the same goal, which is you know to look to create um, minimal wastage um, and contribute to this sort of net zero project by 2025. We, we're desperate to make a positive impact on the environment and society as a whole. And on the societal side, you know, working with a charity such as Mates in Mind on mental health and well-being is where we're really looking to make a difference here. And, and you know, IFSEC itself represents a very, very wide global community. And we can use this sort of privileged position to reach a, a much broader audience and really make a positive impact. Fantastic. And one final question for you, Jerry. What is the number one thing that excites you most about the security industry in the future? I mean, looking at it and the way it's going, it's the ways in which security is kind of becoming part of something else. And by that, I mean the way that you can actually repurpose the technologies and the approaches and the systems and the technologies to deliver something which is way and above just looking for people doing bad things. You know, you've got the amount of, of 
creativity now you can use with security uh, technologies in the form of things like business intelligence. You know, you can measure people that are coming in and out of your building, which then contribute to the actual sustainability of the building itself. It's how the security system contributes to actual overall building control. It's how, you know, an integrated system becomes part of a much wider sort of neural network of of, of a bigger building. And also there's some really cool stuff like, you know, the remote operations, you know, the the evolution, sorry, of GSOCs around the world is a fantastic solution. It's adding to the sustainability of, you know, you can have all your security management in one place. It doesn't even need to be in your own country anymore. You know, it can be an outsourced solution for you. So I think, you know, from the very start, which was, you know, burger alarms in 1973 and the first ISEC in the Royal Lancaster Hotel to where we are now, it's 50 years of incredible development and evolution. And we're looking forward to the next 50. Thanks, Jerry. Lots to get excited about then at this year's IFSEC, as there always is, to be fair. And without waiting any longer, let's get moving to the final part of the episode, where Assistant Editor Rihanna Sexton discusses mental health with MD of leading mental health charity Mates in Mind, Sarah Meek. Now, Mates in Mind are partnering with IFSEC and its co-located show FireX this year, and will have hubs located on two key networking areas at the show. In IFSEC, you'll be able to find some of the team at the British Security Industry Associations, or BSIA for short, stand. While in FireX, you can find them at the Fire Industry Association's networking bar. Look, mental health is a topic that is relevant to all industries, of course, and the security sector is no different. Many professionals are involved in loan working or in the construction industries, two sectors that face significant challenges in this regard. Here, Sarah explains what Mates in Mind is all about and provide some advice to those experiencing mental health challenges or advice for managers who may need to provide support to others in the workplace. But I'll let Rihanna and Sarah take it from here. So Mates in Mind uh, is a charity that was set up five years ago by the Health and Construction Leadership Group to really look at how we can prevent the causes of mental ill health across construction and related industries and to look at sort of the cultural change piece and actually what we can do to minimise the risk of someone becoming unwell and then needing to um, access services. But if they do get to that point where they do need to, to access some extra support, then what we're hoping to do is to break down those barriers, reduce the stigma and make it an okay thing to talk about because obviously there's sometimes a lot of suspicion around you know employee assistance programs and how somebody would be seen in the workplace so for us it's you know really trying to reduce that stigma and we do that through providing training specifically to line managers who've got a responsibility and can do something about you know for example work-related stress but also a general awareness program that allows the whole team to actually recognise the signs of stress and and mental ill health in themselves and others. That's such a great uh, initiative to be doing and it's great Mm. that you're working within the workplace as well to kind of highlight some facts and stigma and would you are there any kind of main facts or statistics that stick out to you to do with mental health or or suicide? Um, We know that within construction that we have about 507 suicides recorded every year at the moment, we we think it could be more because they're not a reportable under the, the, the riddle process. But for us, one is too many. And we would really aim for zero suicide wherever we can. And for people to seek early help to support them rather than leaving it perhaps too late. 
and uh, kind of a bit similar to what you were saying before in terms of helping uh, employers mm -hmm. kind of uh, and helping them along the way in the workplace with employees what advice would you give them for someone who might come to them to say that they're struggling mm -hmm. or um, to approach people who they think they might be might be struggling or, or stressed out one of the statistics I forgot was that through our own research as well, um, we found that a third of smaller and micro businesses are actually working now with severe levels of anxiety. And, you know, the further down the supply chain we get, the more we see through, for example, financial flows and loan working and not having a wider team around you and pressure on supplies, etc. All those things um, really contribute towards someone feeling a really low mood. We would recommend rather than it being held with a few people, we have to absolutely make this that everybody is aware of, of mental health within the workplace, that the whole team is brought along in, in spotting signs and that peer support aspect, because people are going to feel comfortable talking to people left or right of them. It, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go and approach the designated person within the workplace. So for us, it's really getting that peer-to-peer -peer support, making it normal, making it supportive. And the more we can do around that culture change piece, you know, it's really powerful when somebody in a in a position of, in the, in the upper management, for example, talks about their mental health and how much they have struggled. It allows people through the organisation to think it's okay to talk about it. So yes, and also for us, you know, it's including the supply chain. So not just those people who are on the payroll as fixed employees, but actually the people who come onto sites, the people who um, come in through the organisations, onto projects, the trades that all play a part in, in that final project. And also that includes the apprentices as well, to make sure that everybody feels that they are valued and, and being looked after. Yeah, kind of like a web, making sure everyone's part Exactly, of exactly. Yeah, I think that, that's mm. really great. And so what, what advice do you think you would give to people who are struggling themselves or those maybe mm. listening or reading, struggling with mental health? Yeah, I think for anybody who has noticed that their colleague, their friend, their family member isn't quite themselves, then to ask as openly as possible. So not how are you, because how are you generally elicits I'm fine. And it makes it quite hard then to to dig in. So things like, you know, how are you sleeping? What's on your mind? Try and make them as open questions as you possibly can. But if you are concerned about somebody, ask them again, not to the point where you're kind of you're being um, uh, intrusive, but really show them that you care because you don't know when the opportunity is that they're going to speak up. And for organisations where they're concerned about somebody or an individual, know that it's not going to mean you lose your job. It's not going to mean that people think differently about you. It takes a tremendous amount of strength to say that you are finding things difficult. People's challenges can be different on different days. You know, we all know that relationships both at home and at work can impact. Finances can impact. Just having a, a worse commute than normal. You know, all these things when you're feeling vulnerable or you're feeling down can all impact. So just speak to somebody about it. Know that there's also um, a confidential text line that we have um, and that um, other organisations have. So you don't have to say who you are. Most organisations would have an employee assistance programme or if you're working on a project, ask if there's one that you can access. And they very often have things like counselling or financial support and things like that. And just share it. Share it with somebody. 
And I know Mates of Mine was kind of mainly before in, in, in construction, but you're kind of in different industries at the moment. And IFSEC is kind of based around uh, the security sector, the fire sector. And within security, for example, you do have people who loan work a lot of the time. So security officers, security professionals that have loan shifts all the time. You have people in installers and vans by themselves. Do you think that loan working contributes to ill mental health or do you think it's a factor in ill mental health? Yes, we've certainly found that, certainly from our research, that loan working can contribute to it. And that's why, you know, we're, we're looking at different ways in which we can support the loan worker aspect. You know, for example, our HGV drivers, they don't share the cab necessarily with somebody and be able to reach out. So things like the tech service can really help. And yeah, keeping an eye on each other when you when they come into the office, um, you know, ask how they are line managers it rather than always just talking about the project and how the project's progressing take that opportunity to ask how somebody actually is how they're managing with their with their work at the moment how they're managing at home and it's when you get to know somebody that you're going to start noticing those slight slight changes that might happen but absolutely loan working is a known uh, contributing factor which is why we're so keen to work with the fire and the security industries to best support them and you know we do a lot with transport and logistics we do a lot with other environments uh, sectors as well and and this is why we know that what we do works and um, we're looking forward to be seeing you or mates in mind mm-hmm. at health and safety expo hirex ifsec yes. uh, in may what are you most looking forward to at the shows is there anything in particular I think since we have made it aware that we're working with the, with both industries, we've been really, really welcomed by the industries. And, you know, I personally have had lots of people contact me on LinkedIn. I know the rest of the team have in a very embracing way. And so we're really looking forward to starting those conversations with people who have reached out to us. We can't wait to, to do the presentations on both stages to tell people a little bit more about what we do. And then for them to come over and start having a chat with us, because it's absolutely key that we don't put this off um, and think it's something that can be done later because there will be people struggling today that we can help. So, um, no, really looking forward to those conversations and and getting to know the industry and, and meeting everybody. Great, thank you. And you kind of answered my second question there, which was like, how how should security and fire professionals approach you or approach speaking with people and mates in mind? But yeah. I think you kind of said anyway after speaking. Yeah, we're going to have two stands in both the bar areas, I believe, on both sides of the hall. And I'm going to have team on both sides. So, um, yeah, c- come along and talk to us. Tell us, you know, what you're struggling with, where your gaps are. Because some people might have started this whole mental health and well-being, but perhaps it's not having the desired effect or they want a different approach we just want to yeah learn a little bit more about what you do how we can help and uh, it would always be good if someone wants to do fundraising for us as well welcome back and thanks for joining us for today's bumper episode i don't think i need to summarize much there as the speakers have done it all for me so just a few short thank yous really thanks to fegan of course for sharing her experiences The new legislation will hopefully make a real difference and it's taken a lot of work from her and others to get through the various stages required to make it into legislation. I think what's really interesting is that other countries are now beginning to ask Vegan to speak and find out more about the protect duty in in their own geographical regions. And that just shows the impact that this could have after all these years it's taken to get it together. Thanks also to Sarah, As we said earlier, speaking about mental health is incredibly important and it is difficult. So don't forget to come and chat to the team to find out a bit more about how Mates in Mind can support you and your colleagues in opening up that discussion further. 
And of course, thanks to Jerry. Hopefully I'll see lots of listeners at IFSET this year. A final reminder, the show is taking place between the 16th to the 18th of May at London's XL. Loads of content, loads of exhibitors, loads of networking, loads of stuff to do. There's no reason not to come. So do come say hello if you do see me. But for now, thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day, whatever you're doing.